Could I ask you to open your Bibles to James chapter 2? If you don't have a Bible, please bring one next week, because we actually look inside of it every week. And it's really cool if you have your own, because you can jot little notes down and so forth. It could be a real asset for you. And so uh, if, you're, if you're there, I'm going to teach from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 today. Now, uh, those of us at New Community have, we, we really want to observe what's going on in the church in the U.S. I, I've, I've been kind of watching what's happening to faith in the U.S. for really my whole adult life. And I'll be honest, I, I, I'm concerned about many things that I see. I'm concerned that there are many people in the U.S. that say they're Christians, but don't act like it. As a matter of fact, I, uh, a few months ago, I pulled up a survey from Gallup. It was, a Gallup. it was a survey actually at Easter. And so it's relatively recent. And the survey was, how many, what is the percentage of people in the U.S. who say they're Christian? And I was astounded by the number. The number is 77% of people in the U.S. right now say they're Christian. I, I, I just have to pause and ask, is that even possible? The corollary study or research connected to that statistic is 40% of people who say they're Christian, or 40% of these people, don't go to church. Or only 40% go to church, I should say. So there's this huge disparity in the statistics. There's, there's this big gap between people that say they're Christian, and, and not that church me, makes you a Christian, necessarily, but there's this huge gap between people who say they're Christian and people who act it out in some way. Well, if you've been reading along in James, I, I kind of get the feeling that James had a similar concern. Because the text that we're going to read today is one of those familiar texts. I'm going to read the first verse to you right now. It says this, What good is it, my brothers? This is verse 14, James 2.14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Now, I'll be frank. In looking at this text this last week, really thinking deeply about it, I found myself kind of stuck because it's such a familiar text. What is the word of the Lord for our church? And so as we think through this, this question, and that really is the essence of this text, is it possible to have faith and no deeds? In fact, if you look at the entire section, six times James creates this couplet between faith and works. Can you be a person of authentic faith and not have good deeds? Can you be a person who says they believe in Jesus and it doesn't show up some demonstrative way in your life. Can it even happen? In fact, James says, what good is it? It's a qualitative question. What good is it if you say you have faith, but there's no action in your life? So just in case you're ready to doze off already, you can wake back up in 30 minutes, and I'm going to say that again. That is the essence of the entire section. In fact, through this entire section, he says it over and over and over again, but this is what he does. He gives examples to help understand what authentic faith looks like. Now, anybody given public speeches here before? Raise your hand if you've done a public speech. Now, in a public speech, you want to use examples or illustrations or analogies, right? Why do we use examples when we talk? 
Sorry? I'm sorry, I'm deaf. Relatable, okay. Reinforce and support the speech. Mental image, perfect. Make it personal. Application. There was another one. For clarity. Really, the reason we use examples is this. I want to put flesh on concepts. We don't want to keep the concepts that we're talking about way up here. So we use examples. That's exactly what James is doing. He's given us examples so that we can understand what it looks like to have this authentic faith that he starts out with. So for the rest of the morning, that's what we're going to look at. There's four of them in this text. And so let's go ahead and jump in. The first one could be summarized with the statement, faith overcomes indifference. Here it is in verse 15. Follow along with me if you have a Bible. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm without clothes, stay well fed without food, does nothing about the physical needs. What good is it? There's that qualitative statement again. <clears throat> see, James is not saying that people don't see needs. People's, James is saying people don't respond to needs. Can I ask you a question? What, what are some of the reasons people don't respond to needs around them? Selfishness, good. Say a little louder, please. Okay. What else? Fear. Judgment. Like they don't have enough, or <clears throat> they're misusing the resource, or is that what you're saying? Okay. Here's the premise I have. If we're going to say we have faith, if we're not loving people in real and tangible ways, how can we say it's authentic faith? Let me give you an example from the life of Jesus. Luke chapter 10, a lawyer comes to Jesus and asks him a question. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, what does the law say? The lawyer says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, right answer, go do that, and you'll live. Now, it says in the scriptures that the lawyer being uh, smug, trying to justify himself is what it says. He goes, okay, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story. There was a certain person that was walking along a path. Robbers fell upon him, beat him, stripped him, and took, him, took all his stuff from them and left him half dead. So he's laying along the road, and there's a priest, a religious person, walks by, sees the person off to the side of the road, and veers way away from them, from him. A Levite, another religious person, sees the person on the side of the road, veers away. And then it says a Samaritan came along, and it catches this, it says he had pity on him. Grabbed him, bandages his wounds, put him on his donkey, took him to a hotel, and said, I'll cover everything. In fact, if there's any additional cost, when I come back, I'll cover it. Jesus said this. Now, who's your neighbor? And the lawyer rightly answers, well, the one who had pity. Now, you have to understand about this word pity. It's related to the idea of compassion in the New Testament, and it really talks about something that happens inside of us. In fact, in the King James, it, it talks about it, it's, it resides in our bowels. I, I don't really relate to that. I mean, my emotions don't reside in my bowels. I, I know where they're at. 
And that's really it's saying it's deep in your heart. There's an emotional response, right? But the, the definition is coupled with the idea of emotional or empathetic response with a, a commitment to change the situation. Who's your neighbor? Well, the one who was empathetic and was committed to changing the situation of the neighbor. What did Jesus say to him? You go and do that. You go do it. So when we hear this example from James, you know, go, be warm, be well-fed. It's In other words, we bless people, but don't do anything about it. Essentially, we're creating this, this disconnect from the idea of actual authentic faith. Now, it, this might sound staged, honestly. <laughs> Whenever I'm teaching, it's like God interrupts me. It's really a weird concept. So last night, I'm going through my regimen. Like whenever I teach on a Sunday morning, I have this regimen. I go to bed early, I get up really early, I go to Perkins, I do this. Uh, it's kind of like this rhythm I've had for 20 years or so, right? Well, so I go to bed at 9, which is very early for me. I know you're thinking, well, you're old, you go to bed late or early. <laughs> no, I go to bed late, usually. And so I go to bed early, but I had gone out for an Americano at like 6, and then I had coffee for dinner. And honestly, I'm, I'm sitting there rolling around in my bed thinking, i got to go to sleep. I'm, having, I'm, I'm daydreaming, trying to anesthetize my mind. I'm dreaming of dunking on people. It's just a reoccurring dream I have. <laughs> Does anybody ever dream about dunking on anyone? Yeah, it's, it's one I don't ever want to wake up from. It's awesome. Okay, so it's about 11 o'clock. All of a sudden, I hear this. And I'm thinking, 11 o'clock, someone's knocking on my door. Immediately, I get up, start moving, and, and I hear Robbie say, now I'm a, I, I don't have pajamas. Okay, so I'm moving upstairs. And I hear Robbie say, Rob, get up here. And I'm, I'm halfway up the stairs in my tidy whities you know, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do if something happens? Like, you know, what? what what is the deal? So I immediately, she, when she says it, I run back downstairs, and I put my pants on and my shirt, and I run back up. And by the time I get up there, Robbie's talking through our window, not through our door. The door's closed, locked, through the window to this young guy. He was, I, I don't know how old he was, maybe 20, maybe less. He's a skater, drunk, lost, freezing. Sound familiar? So I, I poke my head out the window with Robbie, and Robbie says, he's lost, and he's cold. And so immediately, I start asking him, okay, where are you trying to get to? And I let, so he says he lives in Wandermere, but he wants to get to a friend's house at Rowan, in, on Rowan. Now, if you take a, my house, you can almost put my house in between Wandermere, which is a long ways away, and Rowan, which is a long ways away. So I'm, I start going, well, listen, if you just go out here and take a ride at that busy street, and da, da, da. I mean, you could probably skateboard there, easy. <laughs> okay, this is what's going through my mind. This is confession time. Number one, I've seen a lot of shows. I've seen a lot of news reports. And honest, this is what I'm thinking. They could have a whole bunch of guys in the bushes. And if I open the door, 
I'm going to get ambushed. What is that, what is the core, <laughs> what is the core, I mean, this guy's half my size, just so you know, and drunk and can't find, you know, his way home. So, okay, so what, what driving motive is that? Fear. Here's another one. How dare him interrupt my rest? What's the driving motive there? <laughs> Besides sinful. <laughs> Essentially what that is, it's inconvenience. This is another one. This is my last thought. It's really not that cold out. <laughs> now it really wasn't last night. It wasn't that cold. I mean, he, I know he had, just had a t-shirt on. It was raining and So I, I'm, I'm sit, sitting there processing all this stuff in my mind. And finally, Robbie, who's the Holy Spirit, <laughs> tells me, Rob, take him somewhere. <laughs> and he starts, you know, walking away by then. And so I went and grabbed my shoes on real quick and ran outside. I said, hey, listen, I can take you wherever. And by that time, the door was already shut. And so he walks away, and I just feel like, and then I go back to my house. This is the funny part. Now I have a screen door that the handle's a little loose. I go back to my house and my, ha my handle's missing. I go, hey, did you take my handle? <laughs> he goes, I cer most certainly did not. And then he goes, oh, I guess I do have it. <laughs> I stole my handle. So one of those opportunities to actually practice what I'm, I mean, I'm actually thinking in bed. Like, okay, man, I gotta figure out a way to, to share this story with the people. And then, unaware, I step into the failure of it. John writes in 1 John chapter three, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has, sees his brother need and has material possessions and does not provide for them, this is the question that John lays out. How can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with word or tongue, but with actions and truth. When we talk about authentic faith, it has to be a faith that's related to the idea having compassion for those who are disadvantaged, who are challenged. A book I'm reading right now called The Witness of God, John Flett writes this, love cannot present itself to me other than through actions. So James' point in this, in this first example is, it is not enough to feel sympathy or to even uh, be empathic towards someone else for the plight of those who are needy or disenfranchised, but faith requires response. Got it? Let's look at the next example. Verse 18. Well, some will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. Verse 19. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that, and they shudder. Now, the key to this illusion uh, that James is citing is at the very core of Judaistic faith. Some of you might not know this, but uh, the very core of Judaism is built around this idea of the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. 
And if you were a devout Jewish believer, you would recite the, the great Shema every morning when you wake up and every night right before you go to bed. And what it's doing, it's the great monotheistic verse of the Bible that says, God is one, right? And so you recite it when you wake up to prepare yourself for the day, and you recite it when you go to bed to prepare yourself to rest. So in this, and unfortunately you can't see this in your New Testament translation, James is alluding to the Shema. When he says, hey, listen, you say that the Lord is one, he is referring to the Shema right now. And you have to understand, James is writing to a Jewish audience that would know exactly what he means. And this is what he says. This sign that you use to symbolize that you have faith, you say that God is one, good. So what? Even the demons believe that God is one and they shudder. In fact, in the Greek, it's, it's this idea of the, the hair raising up on the back of your neck. They're totally petrified. In other words, there's no, there's no atheists in the spiritual realm. They know God exists. I, I would probably draw the equivalent in this group to the idea of someone who was raised in a church or someone who was raised in a Christian family. My kids were that. And so oftentimes their, their Christianity is, is tethered to this idea of their family or to going to church or doing the things that Christians do. And James would probably say, so what? Wait, wait, it's not just words. Authentic faith is overcomes indifference, but it's also more than words. It's more than just what we say. Now, I need to say this carefully. Christianity is a faith that has propositions. We do believe certain things. We say Jesus came, he lived a sinful, sinless life, he was crucified on a cross for our sins, he was raised on the third day, he ascended into heaven. We believe certain things. And we have to ascribe to them as Christians. But as Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, For without faith, it is impossible to please God. Make a mental note. You can't please God without faith. And this is how the author of Hebrews describes it. He says, For anyone who comes to him must believe that he is. That's that, the, that assent. Those are those words, that, those are those concepts that we have to agree upon. But that is not enough. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I pray to prayer sometime. This is what he says. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he is, now catch this, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently follow him. See, they work in harmony. They're synergistic. It's not just agreeing to the same stuff, but it's being committed to being a follower no matter what. Did you get that? It's not just what we say. If we're to define authentic faith, it has to be not only in our ascent of the right doctrine, but it's actually living that out. That's that synergy that we're talking about. That's what James is talking about when he talks about the idea of uh, the Shema. Let, let me give you a third example. Here's the third one. It's in verses 20 through 23. You foolish man, you empty-headed man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You say that his faith and his actions were working together. Sunage, it's the word that means there's this synergy that's going on. It has to be connected. They're wed or they're tethered to each other. 
And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scriptures were fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, I don't know if you guys all have the, the framework to catch what's going on here. But you have to know a little bit about Abraham to understand what James is saying. First of all, Abraham was called by God to go from the Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan to establish the promise that God had given him. God said, you're going to be a great nation. I'm going to bless the nations through you. You're going to have a son of the promise to carry this into the future. And years, decades later, Abraham still does not have a son. And as an old man, where the scriptures say that he didn't have life in him anymore, gets his wife pregnant. His wife has a baby named Isaac. And Isaac becomes the son of the promise. In other words, the, the son that God will carry this, this promise of fulfillment into the future. Now, the, the connection to the story is, James uses the story of what happens to Isaac next to substantiate authentic faith. It's interesting. Because when God called Abraham and gave him this promise, it said, and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was called God's friend. Way, way, way back before Isaac was born. 22 years later or whatever, Isaac's born, and then God does the unpredictable. God says, take your son, who was a, a, a young man at that time, take your son to Mount Moriah, take him there and sacrifice him for me. So Abraham obeys, takes his servant and his son to Mount Moriah, tells his servants, you guys stay here, we're going to go to the top, we'll be back. Right? So he takes him to the top, binds his son, places the wood around him, and he's getting ready to sacrifice his son. And there's a, there's a voice it says, Abraham, Abraham, now I know that you believe me. You believe in me. Wait a minute. 22 years later, or before that, it already said that he believed in him. What was going on is, at, at this situation with Isaac, it was demonstrated. The belief was demonstrated in a real and tangible way, and God provided a lamp. And so Isaac and Abraham go down the mountain, they go on with their life, and Isaac becomes this child of the promise. I have no idea how to even calculate what's going on in Abraham's mind as God tells him to go sacrifice his son. If you're a dad, I mean, that is incomprehensible. I don't understand God. I used to have God figured out, honestly. But the, the, the longer you walk with God, the more I realize he's mysterious. I don't even get this stuff. So the question is, I mean, did Abraham come to a place where he just goes, this just doesn't make sense? You promised, and the son, look, at it all makes sense, and, and now you're going to have me sacrifice him. Has that ever happened to you? Where you find yourself trying to obey God, and you get into the middle of it, and you just go, man, this does not make sense anymore. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about girls and guys. The, the idea of God promising something, this is an aside. This is, this is separate from your tithe dollars right now. This is just an, listen, do not project your stuff on God as a promise when you think that you have a soulmate. 90% of people who say they have soulmates, they don't stay together. I just made that statistic up, but it seems that way. <laughs> Seriously, I, you know how many people I've talked to said, this guy's my soulmate. Oh, that guy's my soulmate. Listen, I see so many young people get in trouble because they start thinking that God's made a promise that he has to fulfill with that girl or that guy. 
Can I tell you this? The only time we're absolutely certain that God made a promise about that girl or that guy is when the person says what? I do. Then they are. You know that for sure. Up until that time, do not get messed up thinking that's part of God's promise for you. Okay, I'll back, back to the sermon. <laughs> Honestly, please, please, spare us all the hassle. You know how much hassle we've gone through. Abraham did come to this place where he just goes, this doesn't make sense anymore. So the question is, how did he get through that? Now, there's a backstory to this. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's a story of faith. They cite this exact example in that chapter as well. And it says what Abraham was thinking. This is what Abraham was thinking. I knew God told me to take my son up there, but I knew, this is what it says, even if I did sacrifice him, God would raise him up from the dead. That's, that was faith. Can I tell you this? Authentic faith has to be married to hope. It has to be married to the promise that God gives you. So what kind of promises does God give us? What has God promised us? Eternal life. I'm sorry? Okay, never leave us and forsake us. What else? Who strengthens us, exactly. What else? That he loves us. That he will continue to love us. What else? Where's theirs? He'll give us peace. He'll be gracious to us. All of these things. I, I don't want to spend a ton of time, but we could create a mosaic of ideas of those promises that God has given us. And you know what? Those promises allow us to have faith in the in-between time when we say it doesn't make sense. We have to go back to the promises of God and live into those. As a matter of fact, the definition of, of faith in Hebrews 11 says this. Now faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. That's the definition of faith. Faith has to be connected to hope or you'll get stuck. You'll just you'll throw up your hands and go, Hey, this doesn't make sense anymore. It's too hard. It didn't work out the way I expected it. And you'll just say, forget it. We have to cling to the hope that God gives us. That's what Abraham did. He clung to the idea that God made a promise about his son, and he trusted no matter what happened, God would fulfill it. Okay, let me give you the last example. Not only is, is faith, not only is authentic faith overcome indifference, not only does authentic faith beyond words. Not only does authentic faith, is it mar married to hope, but the last example, authentic faith is connected to riskiness. <laughs> Look at this next example. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? Now Rahab is an unexpected example in this story. Can I tell you why? Here she is, as mentioned, as one of the, the prime examples of faith. She's a prostitute, number one. She's a Gentile, number two. And she's a woman, number three. In this era, all of those three things would disqualify her from being someone who followed God. 
And what we see is, James says, hey, look at this example here. Rahab. If you don't know the story, Joshua was called to enter into the promised land. He sends two spies in to check out the city. The two spies come in. They're, they're being sought after, and Rahab gives them safe harbor in her house. Rescues them. And this is what it says. It says that, I know that God is with you, so I will protect you. Right? And later on, this story comes up where it's a crazy story. I mean, the Bible's full of crazy stories. Risky stories. The, 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 the front story of Rahab's life is Joshua goes in and says this. This is a, this is a risky story. Okay, we're going to take over the city. This is our plan. God tell, told me this is the way it works. We're going to get all our priests, all of our people. We're going to take seven days. And six of the days, we're going to march around the city one time. We're going to blow trumpets, and we're going to walk. Six days straight. On the seventh day, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go around seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, you're going to blow the trumpets, and everybody's going to shout. And then what? No, that's it. That's what you're supposed to do. Then you'll win. <laughs> I don't know about you, but that is not strategic. So what they do? They do their thing, blow the trumpet, seventh day, go around. I'm not going to go around seven times. I'll fall over. They blow their trumpets. They all shout. They shout. And the walls come down. They go in and they seize the city. And the first thing that comes out of Joshua's mouth is, be sure to go and get Rahab and everybody who's in her household because she acted this way for us. She becomes this, this hero of faith. It's back to that idea that requires risk to be authentic, faithful people. Here's another story. And we could, just, we could spend days talking about crazy stories. Here's one. Gideon, Judges. God calls Gideon to go and take over the Midianites. Now, Midianites, it says that their army was like a sea. They couldn't count them. So God says, this is the strategic plan. Ready? You have 32,000 warriors. You have too many people. This is what I like to do. Gather them all around and then say, if anybody's afraid, go home now. 22,000 people left. So they're down to 10,000 taking on a sea of people. God says, wait, wait, that's not enough. That's too many people. Let's see, this is what we'll do. Have them go down and get a drink. Anybody who drinks with his mouth out of the stream has to go home. Anybody who laps up water out of their hand, they get to stay. So out of the 10,000 people that are left, three, 300 people are left over. God says, perfect. That's the number I was looking for. Now you're going to go take on the Midianites. This is the plan. Ready? Break up into three groups of 100. Surround their troops. This is what you need. You need empty pots. You need some torches and trumpets. Okay? This is the way it's going to work. When I say go, you throw your pot and break it on the ground. You blow your trumpet. You raise your torch in the air and say, For the Lord and for Gideon! <laughs> I can just see the, some of his uh, commanders going, I'm preferring a more stealthy approach. <laughs> That's going to kind of, you know, show that we're, where we're at. And, and he goes, no, this is it. We, we need to trust God. And so they go up. They throw their pots down. They blow their trumpets. They raise their torch. For the Lord and for Gideon. And this is what it says. <laughs> it says, they all turn their swords on each other. And they, Gideon didn't even have to raise a sword to win the battle. 
Now that's a risky plan, because what if it doesn't work? They're dead, right? Now it's not just Old Testament, there's crazy stuff in the New Testament too. How about this one? Acts chapter 3, Peter's going to the temple to pray. Three o'clock in the afternoon, prayer time. Now it says that there was an invalid at the gate begging for money, and he was there from birth. Now Peter was a praying guy, so he went all the time. Peter must have seen this guy over and over again. But something happened on this particular day where he's walking by. The guy's begging for money, and Peter stops and looks right at him. And he says this, look at me. This is pretty weird right now, isn't it? Okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll do Melissa. <laughs> that was really awkward. Okay. <laughs> look at me. No, you. The guy immediately looks up and, and says that he anticipated getting money, right? And Peter says this. I don't know. I mean, the Holy Spirit must have told him this because he passed by him hundreds of times before this. He says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I have, here. Stand up and walk. And picks him up. He stands up and he's healed. <laughs> and it says that the invalid was healed and he ran, it says he ran and he jumped and he praised God with his new legs. I don't know about you, but I don't know if God's ever told you, okay, I want you to do this to that, with that person. God ever spoke to you like that? Then I'd be go, whoa, well, they're not going to understand. They're not going to get this. Listen, authentic faith requires taking risks. You can't do it in the safe zone. I don't mean just dump your brains out. I mean, God doesn't expect us to be stupid. But he does expect us to trust. We have to walk by faith, not by sight, right? So we look at this story, and we look at Rahab, who had a risky faith. You know, it's interesting. Tony Campolo wrote in a book that was uh, entitled, Who Changed the Price Tags? They surveyed scores of these people who are 95 years or older, and they asked them this. If you could change anything about your life up to this point, what would you want to change? And there were three res uh, uh, um, resounding uh, commitments or ideas that came back from these people who were older. This is what they were. If I could do it over again, I would reflect more. I would do more that will live on after I'm gone. And I would take more risks. The American ethos is one of safety and security. I want to tell you, church, we have to be people who, are, who, who step into faith that aren't afraid to take risks. There are times in each one of our lives where it's simply not going to make sense. What are some of the risks that you'll have to take? Think just quietly in your mind. Think about what types of risks might God call me to? How about giving money away? It's been one of those things that's never made sense. Can you make sense of that? I mean, you can actually keep that money on your, for yourself. You give money away, you go, here, I'm going to give this away, and I'm never going to see it again, and I can't really understand why. Right? That's a risk. You take the risk. You take risks with relationships all the time. Will you reconcile? Will you say you're sorry? Will you ask forgiveness? 
will you forgive? How about this? I'm going to say I love you to somebody that's difficult to say I love you to. And we could pile these up over and over, but the reality is we have to be people who are willing to take risks. That's part of being people of authentic faith. Now there's one more verse in this text. It's in verse 26. It says this. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's very similar to the way James started the passage, right? Now, have you ever had an opportunity to go to an open casket funeral? Raise your hand if you've been to one. Yeah, a lot of you. They're kind of weird. I'll be honest. I always don't know exactly what to do when I go walk by, like, they're, like, dead. You know? I mean, I want to be respectful and everything. But you know what they do. They, they try to make them look normal, right? Comb their hair put on their nicest clothes, put some make on their face so that it looks like they had a little sun, you know, feeling pretty healthy. In fact, I've been told this, I don't even know this for sure, but I've been told they sew up the orifices so they don't let gas out, which is kind of weird. It's almost like they're alive, but they're not. That's what James is saying, right? Just in the same way, a body without the spirit is dead, so is your faith if there's no actions accompanying it. Is that strong enough? So the question is, what good is your faith if it doesn't have these deeds? Our faith, authentic faith, overcomes indifference. Authentic faith is more than words. Authentic faith is married to hope. Authentic faith is actually taking risks when God calls you to. Faith without works, what good is it? What good or what benefit is a body without a soul? What good is a warm blessing without warm clothes and warm food? What good is saying you have faith when your life speaks otherwise? James has given us examples to prove this one thing. Authentic faith must be one that is accompanied to life, the life of a follower. I'd like you to pray with me.